Hey, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Killian. And this is the From First to Last podcast. This is a From First to Last podcast. It's a podcast where my friend Craig and I, we get together each week. We work our way through a director's theatrical filmography from the first film all the way through to their last. And Craig, guess what? What's up? We are full circle on our Ron Howard season. Yes, we are. And found ourselves recording in lockdown. Lockdown again, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) So Jeff and I are not in the same room. No footsies tonight. No footsies tonight. It's actually really funny. Uh, During our Near Dark episode last season for Catherine Bigelow, we got to to do a little online interview with Maria Lewis, which was amazing. Fantastic. And unfortunately, she was in lockdown at the time and thought it was really cute at the fact that Craig and I could be in the same room as each other. <laughs> um, but we are in lockdown. So if this is sounding a bit different today, that's why. what's going on. We are literally doing this via the magic of technology. Magic. 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 <laughs> so this season, Craig, we are talking who? We're talking Michael Mann. Heck yes. Um, and we got to talk last week his first film. Thief? Yes. Fantastic. (laughs) Literally, Craig, my notes here say, what a fantastic debut film. I know. What a fantastic, almost close to being my favorite. Close to being my favorite. would wholeheartedly agree with you, Craig. And we sort of talked about in our intro episode that we possibly could end up with a very polished first film from Michael Mann. Yeah, exactly. Given his history of commercials and he'd already had an Emmy Award winning TV film in the Jericho Mile. Yep. And I would say we were pretty spot on there. Yeah, very spot on. But it was also, he got such good talent for his first film. Yeah, totally. That's pretty mind-blowing as well. Like James Kahn is just fantastic in it. Isn't he what? And I think the other thing that sort of took us a bit by surprise last week was just how deep some of the roots of the film Thief flow into his later films. Definitely. So w- when you start thinking the way that Thief is almost like a prequel to Heat. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? It's, it's um, and, and I start to think about each part of the um, film and I start thinking maybe it feels like they're all I know it sounds stupid, but they are all in the same universe. Yeah, it's it is so crazy, isn't it? Um, I I really believed I could see how that is. Hey, so uh, it's it's really it's an incredible insight to just how deep and well versed man was already so early in his career. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you just got a feeling they all know each other. Yeah, and for totally. some reason I could just I, I like I haven't rewatched it yet. For some reason I could see Johnny Depp, you know, in his little fedora, just sitting there with Robert De Niro and James Kahn all around that same freaking cafe. 
That's so true. And uh, okay, and like Scott seeing seeing Scott, <laughs> Scott Glenn. Oh my goodness, we that's a great little segue, Craig. Because this week we are talking the keep. We are, we are, we are. <laughs> um, I think not this the bondage was probably... novel. <laughs> <laughs> if you look it up, okay, there's F. W. Murray's one, and then there's also yep. a bondage novel called The Keep. Yep, yep. Craig did send me the synopsis of this, and uh, I was in the middle of teaching a class at the time. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> and uh, it didn't pop up on my screen, thankfully, but uh, it was very hilarious nonetheless. I really yep. enjoyed it. But I've got to say, for every season, there's generally one film that we feel is somewhat of an unknown quantity. Definitely. Uh, and The Keep was definitely that for us. Oh, and very I, unknown. I don't, I don't know about you, Craig, but for me, this is literally the most fascinating film we've covered yet on this podcast. To me, it's still an unknown quantity. <laughs> <laughs> I I have had the beauty of being able to go down the rabbit hole on this film. As you Superb. know, I love to make sure I'm well versed in most things that I'm talking about. And uh, yeah, this is... Bonkers. Ballsy bonkers. <laughs> it's ballsy so ballsy, bonkers. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It is incredibly ballsy, man. I um yeah, I'm really shocked by how ambitious this film was. Yep. And we're about to take a little journey into it, but it's so ambitious, it's so teetering on pretentious, it's that ambitious. Yeah, yeah. Um it's also, I'm really interested to dive into as we start talking this film, Craig. I think there are a lot of lessons learned for young man, the filmmaker. Yeah. Um, it's also a few lessons in how studios can get involved a little bit too much. This feels like the Justice League before the Justice League. Oh, if this was released today, you would have the man cut. Well, it's interesting you say it, Craig, because there has actually for years been petitions wanting Michael Mann's original cut, which, can I tell you, is rumoured to be 210 minutes long. Good Lord. Three and a half hours is the rumoured Michael Mann cut. Sounds like it needed it. Uh, (laughs) If I will get into that more. (laughs) We totally will. Um, But what's really interesting about The Keep is the events that go on here has actually led to Michael Mann essentially disowning the film. Oh. Um, It's actually like in such a way that he's actually proactively tried to stop it being released. It's a shame. If Sam Sam Raimi still like accepts Crime Wave, then he should accept The Keep. And we will go there a bit later on, Craig. So I'm really keen. So should we dive in? Dive. Dive. And let's get in because this is, seriously, this is, if there's a 210-minute Michael Mann cut, we might end up having a 210-minute from first to last cut oh, of this episode as well because there's so much wait. to talk I about. I deliberately didn't want to read much into the development of this film because I just wanted to hear it fresh. Fresh. <laughs> so good. Take my virginity, Jeff. <laughs> I'm spread, so, be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly. So, Craig, following the Emmy Award winning Jericho Mile and the the reasonable critical success 
uh, for the directing of Thief, not necessarily the film itself, but man has got a bit of buzz as a director. He's actually really viewed now as an exciting up-and-coming director. People are really keen to see what will be next for him. So um, the real big question was a lot of studios were sort of looking to get in on Michael Mann and what will be his next project. So I'd hazard a guess that his follow-up to Thief probably took a lot of studios by surprise too, especially seeing as though like when you think about Jericho Mile onto Thief, there's sort of this underlying... I guess themes that revolve around criminals and crimes. So to then jump into what is a gothic <laughs> sci-fi horror film? Yeah, supernatural thriller. It's really, um, it's quite a leap from Thief, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. I, I, it was just, it was something that when I first saw it on his um, page, I was just like, oh man, I have to see this. Yep, totally. You know what I mean? Um, it's like it's like seeing Zack Snyder and you go, romantic comedy? Man, I'm going to have to just, what? I'm fucking confused, man. I'm going to have to give it a try. I'll give it a try. <laughs> totally. And I went, I, I don't know about you, but I also tried to be very blind as to how much information I knew about the film before my first watch. Yeah. And I think I was really naive. Somehow I'd thought this was going to be like a Nazi zombie movie. Same, same. And I ran with that too. When you talked about it, I was like, okay, yeah, this is a Nazi zombie film. So I did, because I didn't want to look into it too much. I just heard, I heard Nazis and Jewish people who helped save them or something like that. I was like, <laughs> yeah, cool. Sounds fancy. <laughs> sounds, sounds glorious. I'm, God, I'm good so- with that. So true. Um, so, yeah, it was really took me a bit by surprise when we got into the actual film and really I began to learn what it was about. And I was like, <laughs> so it really, I, I started going down this. Uh, it sent me really down the rabbit hole, hey. And, and so <laughs> um, aside from watching, say, our first film followed by our last film, yeah, I've actually never been compelled to, to immediately re-watch a movie that we've covered. Yeah. We're, um, until now. And I think what's really interesting is the way that um, when we've covered films on this podcast, I think the second films of a filmmaker's filmography are fast becoming way more interesting than, say, their first film. Yeah, it's a, yeah that is odd. Yeah, it's... Um, or the first film where they've given a little bit more rain. Yeah, yeah. And so it's almost like they're constricted for their first film a lot of the time. Therefore, creatively, um, they're tighter films. Yeah, So definitely. the second film becomes this project where they're given free reign. And if it's okay, I'd love to just touch on some of the second films that we have covered already on the definitely, podcast. Definitely. Let's just do to it. just to give some context because I think it's really really interesting because we're also finding a lot of the times these second films are the film that really shapes the future of their career. Yeah. In this weird way. So if we think let's take Joe Carnahan for example. Jojo. So his first film was not great. We saw some hints of a good writer in there. Yeah, you did. But then it totally took us by surprise that his second film, he drops Narc, 
Yes, which was so controlled and still probably one of his best films. Definitely. And it was so solid that it actually gained Oscar buzz. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah, so so crazy, right? If we think last season to Catherine Bigelow, her second film is Near Dark. Oh, man. <laughs> which, again, when you've had a very contained film like The Loveless then suddenly you have this world that's expanded for near dark. Yeah, and, and it's money. Such, yeah, that's exactly right. There's there's opportunity. Now, there are a couple interesting ones in there, and you've mentioned Sam Raimi's second film, <laughs> which is we go from the Evil Dead to Crime Wave. Yeah. And Crime Wave is essentially a Looney Tunes cartoon. Crime Wave is so similar to The Keep, like in the fact that, they're two different minds poured on paper, in yeah. essence. You know what I mean? Um, so true. But, and you know what? And and to compare it to previous seasons, this is also their, um, I've totally forgotten that Zack Snyder film now. 300? No, not 300. Um, Sucker Punch? Sucker Punch. Yeah. It might be the Scott Glenn curse. Is Scott Glenn in um, Crime Wave? <laughs> oh, gosh. That would be hilarious. It might be the Scott Glenn curse. He just like, yeah, Scott Glenn doesn't actually read the scripts. He just goes, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess where I'm really going with this, like we could talk Snyder drops 300 as his second film. Yep. Which really set up a visual styling for the rest of his projects. Yeah, he's almost constricted by it. Um, but then you get interesting ones like, say, Robert Zemeckis and Ron Howard drop used cars and Night Shift as their second film, which becomes like this, uh, these extremely raunchy versions of what they've, they go on to do. Yeah. And I guess where I'm going with this is a lot of the times we're discovered that the second film is really where they've almost been given so much free reign that they try, they try a heap of stuff. And they almost, a lot of the time, end up sort of a bit of failure. Yeah. I'd say we're probably on a 60-40 success rate, you know, 60% not successing in quality. Um, but what it means is there's all these lessons learnt in there, whether it's Ramey and Crime Wave learning how to deal with a studio. Remember, he had all those issues with studios. Uh, Bigelow had to learn how to, to really run an independent film while yep. still maintaining Hollywood quality. I think Howard learnt how to be too raunchy. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It, it, um, it, it's very similar. It is, um, yeah, it is very similar. Some of them try to build on brand. Yeah. While others basically try to, well, try to just let that creative world just, they, they, they step too quickly and seem like they're overwhelmed in the industry business. Very much so. And so I just find the second film for me is starting to become the most exciting film in a film Very to really dig into. Yeah, heaps interesting. Um, which leaves us today with The Keep, which I'm really, really excited to dig <laughs> Oh, mate, dig I'm into. very excited. Very excited to hear it. So, Craig, before we get too deep in the film, let's just take a moment for those people who may have no idea what The Keep is about. And I can say, as I put it on our social media that we were watching the film. Yep. A lot of people commented, 
what the heck is this? Uh, um, so people, I'm gathering not a lot of people had seen this 1983 gem. Um, so <laughs> let's take a little moment, Craig, and let's just hear about it. When Nazis take over an ancient fortress, a mysterious entity wreaks havoc and death upon them. The only ones that can save them are a Jewish professor, his daughter, and a mysterious man who knows its secret. Let's talk about Michael Mann's first and last horror film, The Keep. So good, Craig. Now, The Keep was released theatrically 16 December 1983, and... We weren't reporting it's a Christmas on Christmas release. It's a Christmas release, <laughs> and there there is there is a somewhat tragic reason as to why that is. Oh, so we'll get there get there a bit later. But it was intended to be released in uh, July 1983 and was delayed six months. Now the film took 3.6 million dollars in the US. That's brilliant. Um, it had a budget of six million. Oh. That may actually balloon as we start to learn more about the film. Ooh. But really, before we take a dive into the film's journey to screen, let's take a brief snap- snapshot and we'll really sort of get a vibe of what was released and what sort of major events were going on in the world of cinema in 1983. Yeah. Because I do think it's really important to know what the landscape was like. Because when you watch this after watching, say, I don't know, the last film I think I watched was. I can't even remember what it was, but I was watching something quite modern. Actually, I've been watching the Hannibal TV show. So then to go and uh, go to the keep after this, you're just like, what on earth is this? But to really get a picture of what was released at that time, this might actually be quite a common sort of styling for the time. And so um, in terms of sort of major events in 1983... The films had really started to see a bit of a shift in tone. So they were starting to become a bit darker, a bit raunchier at times. And 1983 was actually uh, a big year because it had actually saw more R-rated films being released in North America than ever before. Oh, wow. So it sort of really starts this shift where... Well, I actually, I think it might come out this year, actually, Craig, but we'll, we'll check it. So what we'll do is we'll have a look through at what the um, top 10 sort of grossing films in the US were at that point. Yep. Again, worldwide box offices weren't being sort of tallied at this point, but yep. we'll have a look. So the number one film in 1983 was rounding out the Star Wars trilogy with Return of the Jedi. Ooh, Really? And this this is actually our first film in 1983 that we've covered. Oh, oh wow. That's just, yeah. Oh, Return of the Jedi. What a fantastic film. So Return of the Jedi took $252 million in the US. Oh, my Lord, in that time. I oh, know. That's huge, isn't that it? That is huge. That's like a billion-dollar film. 100%. Um, this, the number two film for uh, 1983 was Terms of Endearment. Oh, really? Now, Terms of Endearment took $108 million. Damn, that's, that's good. Cool. That's good. And was actually the Oscar darlings at the Oscars that year. Makes sense. Uh, it had 11 nominations and five wins. So it got Best Film, Best Director for James L. Brooks, Best yep. Actress for Shirley MacLaine, yep. Best Supporting Actor was Jack Nicholson. Good on you, Jack. And Best Adapted Screenplay, which was James L. Brooks. Damn, so, James L. Brooks. I know, really cleaned up. Now, 
Moving on to the number three film for 1983, it was Flashdance, Craig. Oh, Flashdance, love it. Now, she reminds I, me of the girl out of this film. Hey, um, oh, it was a vibe was. going on. Oh yeah, yeah it's, totally. it's that permy perm thing, you know. Yep. And if you remember back to our intro episode, uh, director of Flashdance was one of Michael Mann's fellow students. He worked with at the London Film School. He was at. Oh really. Yep, uh, Adrian Lim, maybe. Uh, my name, my my name memory generator is gone tonight. There's, there's a, like a flash dance person out there going, it's Adrian Lim. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Number four was Trading Places. Oh yes. Oh, I love that film so damn much, man. I just want to watch it again. Uh, number five was a, a movie I watched a lot growing up was War Games. Oh, really? Did you like that? Yeah. That's Matthew Broderick. Yeah, yeah Matthew Broderick. Yeah, nah. It was I only just watched it like once or twice. One of those films that just strangely I watched a lot. Uh, another film I watched a lot growing up is James Bond. The number six film is Octopussy. Oh, really? Yeah. Lady with eight vaginas. <laughs> the old Rodney Root was it Rodney Root <laughs> I have no idea Craig but strangely the film ends with him liberating the Taliban oh and... good work good work that, well that's, <laughs> so, the, that's the same with Rambo 3 he joins he joins the Taliban to fight against to fight the Russians to take him out of Afghanistan Oh, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so interesting. I've actually uh, recently started watching the Rambo films for the first time ever. So I watched First Blood for the first time the other night. I'm working my way through slowly, Craig. So it's, it's, when I get to Rambo 3. It's such a weird turn in franchise. Yeah. Like when the, it gets the to three. Feel. Oh, even when it gets to two. Oh, you know okay. what I mean? Like there's, like there's bits of two. There's bits of... To like has that bit of seriousness in it, but yeah. it just turns straight into this like popcorn film. Like even part one isn't. Like part no. one's very suspenseful and thriller, and then yeah. it just turns into just an, a a muscle Hulk just shooting <laughs> grenades at people and shit. Um, I remember still love them. I actually... still love them. Yeah, <laughs> I know you do. Uh, you and I, I think we went and watched the. <coughs> Reboot that he did, not the last Blood one, but the I think it was just called Rambo. Yeah, um, and we saw that film, and I remember Sylvester Stallone really saying this is the film that he wanted First Blood Part Two to be. Yeah, to keep in that. So, um, yeah, I, I'm really interested to see where it goes. Really interesting little side note on Rambo as well. Did you see? Oh, I wish I could remember which director said it the other day, but he's basically like, "Let me do a Rambo reboot starring Adam Driver." Ooh. And it was strange. I looked at a photo of Adam Driver and I was like, I could, would happily watch that. I, I, I would. I would. <laughs> that dude just won me. Yeah, that, that's, that's a fucking winner. Yeah, I would. I would. I'd watch that horse so head good. go for it, man. That's hardcore. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. So good. The number seven film was Sudden Impact, Clint Eastwood. Oh, returning. fantastic film. I saw his new trailer. Oh yes, cry macho. Is it good? <laughs> it looks. Oh, uh, it sort of looks like every Clint the Clint Eastwood film. The first <laughs> comment on the YouTube channel summed it up perfectly. Oh, I love when Clint um helps little brown boys. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yikes! Yikes! Craig. So true. 
Oh, <laughs> hey, the number eight film, John Travolta. He is staying alive. Oh wow! Have you ever seen it? Oh, a long time ago. I believe. Yeah. It, I remember from memory. It was way darker than I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, Fran Drescher. Um, now the number eight film, Craig, was Mr. Mob. Mr. Mom. Oh, good old Michael Keane. Come Took on, 64 mil. Man. Now, the number 10 film, Risky Business. Oh, yay. Yeah. Go, Tom. I love Tom you, Tom. I had a crush Dream. on her. She was beautiful, man. Oh, is that Tangerine Dream as well? Yep. Soundtrack for the Risky Business. Oh, wow. That makes so much sense, man. Yep. So much sense. We'll talk sense. about those guys later, too. Yes, please. Um, so, as I said before, this is the first film that we've ever covered in 1983. But there are a couple other notable releases that were released in, in the year. Uh, the Right Stuff was released. Oh, yeah. Which was Scott Glenn had a big year this year. Oh, yeah, he was. Hey. The Keep and The Right Stuff. Um, also in there was Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Oh, I love that. That's a great show. Uh, Steve Martin in The Man with Two Brains. Oh, <laughs> what a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic um, show. Kathleen Hepburn. Yeah. A high-quality film in oh, Superman Kathleen. 3 was released. <gasps> really? Oh, man. What a... <laughs> I'm trying to remember which one. So there's two. Which one's three? Three is where the other guy comes in? Is it the sun one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, where he has the... They, they clone him and and they turn this sun creature. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fucking... Is that... No, no, I think that's four, isn't it? Quest four's for... the one, Quest four's for the peace? one with... Um... Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor. I don't know. It's been too long. Yeah, it's been too long. It's been too long. Um, Also released All the Right Moves. Same year as Risky Business. Um, Also, keeping the fantasy going was Krull. Oh, Krull. I loved Krull. Yeah, those dark sort of fantasy I love that shit, man. Um, National Lampoon's Vacation was released. (laughs) Oh, really? The Griswolds? Yep, the Griswolds. And... Scarface. Fantastic. What so, a fantastic year, man. Yeah, Scarface, man. But you can so, see it was that darker tone to the whole year, yeah, eh? It's a real sort of shift, and we start getting into what becomes, like you mentioned, the popcorn films start popping up yeah. a bit more. Call them the but, cocaine titty years. <laughs> they totally work, right? And you can, see, you can see in this film that we got today, uh, there is one heck of a... Out of the blue sex scene. This is Jordan. This is the time of Jordan Belfort, you know, and all these eighties just hardcore yep. monsters, man. And this is where you can see the culture just doing that turn into it, greed. Into greed is good type world. A hundred percent. And I think it's really interesting to take that in consideration because I think films like The Keep, these sort of darker fantasy films that are being made now, yeah, is sort of the moment before, like people were throwing money at big productions but it was before it became sort of bastardized and really popcorny yeah exactly so we're about to see another shift happen but i think it's a really fascinating sort of time so we sort of got this idea craig now of what the landscape's like in 1983 mm. but we got to remember there's only two years between the release of thief and the release of the keep really so you must have just jumped from one to the other Definitely, he's just basically gone straight into it. Uh, and like I said before, this really is the more I got into it, seriously, was a rabbit hole. And let's be honest, I could have done 
we could do a whole season on the making of this movie. It is so fascinating. Oh, and, man. And, and it's really sort of captured quite a few movie buffs sort of hearts on on the journey this film took so um it's really intriguing but before we sort of really get in there we're going to rewind a little bit like we normally do when we start a movie we're going to go back a few years craig go back all all the way back actually two years to the year that thief was released which is 1981 That's right, Scooby doing this. Um, so, 1981 is actually the year that author F. Paul Wilson releases oh, F. Paul Wilson. the first horror novel in what would become a series of seven novels making up the adversary cycle called The Keep. <laughs> now, the novel was uh, reasonably well received and even made an appearance in the New York best, Times bestseller list. Oh, that's pretty good. Um, and after... I don't know if you remember back when we did our Who Framed Roger Rabbit season. We sort of took a look at the novel that inspired Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, that weirdest shit one, yeah. And it was pretty wild. So actually, it was when I was planning this episode, I was like, you know what? Maybe we'll just have a little read of the synopsis of the Keep novel to just have a check to see, because maybe this might be quite an adventure as well, Craig. Yeah. So... Do you want to take a little trip down there and see what it is all about? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> the plot. I'm going to read the plot from Wikipedia so you can have a look along with me. Also, as we always talk about for this season, I'm going to be popping the references up on the show notes. So, if you want to have a little bit more of a read into this, there's some really fascinating articles I found with so much information. So, German soldiers and SS Einstein commandos are being slowly killed off in a mysterious castle, the keep of the title, high in the Carpathian Mountains of Romania in 1941. Theodore Kuza, a Jewish history professor living in Bucharest, and his daughter Magda, little name change happens in the film, if you yeah. realise, are brought to the keep by SS Sturmenbefuhrer Eric Kampfer in a desperate attempt to determine what is murdering his men. Kuza is later tasked with defeating the unknown evil that is wreaking havoc. The professor translates a mysterious message written in blood on the wall that uses a forgotten dialect of Old Romanian or Old Slavonic. The entity responsible for the death calls itself Molossar, and it finds Professor Kuza useful. Molossar procures his services through deception and false promises, and even puts the scloderma, uh, scleroderma from which he suffers (laughs) into remission so he can work for him. Molazar is later revealed to be Rassalom, an ancient sorcerer from the first age of humans. An immortal man calling himself Glenn, whose real name is Glaken, is a reluctant champion of the ancient forces of light. He becomes aware of Rassalom's activities from across the world and travels to the keep. He built the keep as a prison for Rassalom out of the reluctance to kill him outright. The two beings are mystically linked in a way that binds their destinies together, even though Rassalom's growing mystical powers are vastly greater than Glenn's own. To keep him from ever forgetting his mission, the forces of life had taken away his reflection. Magda and Glenn meet and develop a romantic relationship. Professor Kuza manipulates the Germans into arresting Glenn and bringing him into the keep where he is he will be vulnerable to Rassalon. 
Inside the keep, the German soldiers riddle Glenn's body with bullets. Magda brings Glenn his mystical sword, the source of his power, which enables him to heal his mortal wounds. Rassalom instructs Professor Kuza to remove the talisman that imprisons him and bury it outside the keep. Magda leaves Glenn to recuperate and tries to convince her misguided father not to cross the perimeter of the fortress. Glenn arrives and joins the talisman to his sword, enabling him to drive Rassilon back into the depths of the keep. Rassilon then uses his telekinetic abilities to launch an overwhelming assault against Glenn. Rassilon rashly launches his, himself bodily at, age, at an age-old enemy and is reduced to ashes by a single stroke from Glenn's sword. Glenn plummets into the craggy rocks below. He awakens to discover that he is now mortal, having vanquished his longtime foe, and he and Magda reunite. Yay! <laughs> so that is the premise of the book, and I guess when we think about that, did you did you did you see what happens through the rest of the cycle? No. Did you go and have a look what happens so, yeah, further so on? Ramsalom after he dies in this one. Yeah. Goes into the body of a child that has been cloned. So there's mm-hmm. a um there's a clone, but there's a boy who grows up, finds out he's a clone. Sorry, he finds out he's a clone because they they left him all this money. This is in his other books. And then they he meets a girl, they have a baby, and that baby is Ramsalon revived. The f- Whoa. So there's one of his fam- most famous book is a character named Jack the Repairman. So Jack the Repairman is just a vigilante who goes, he's like the equalizer. No, 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 no supernatural powers or nothing. And this is his most famous book. And that sells mostly everything. It's just detective novels. But what he does is um, the author brings all of these characters into one book called The Nightlife, which is the final one. Um, oh, I th- wow. I think it's called The Nightlife or something like that. So Ransalem grows up, takes over the world, and literally starts lowering the time of day. So, because he has cannibal monsters who run out at night. So basically zombies who yeah. take over at night. And so <laughs> this repairman, Jack, um, Glanick, what, what's his name? Glenn? Glenn? Let's just yep. call him Glenn. Glenn, who's now an old man because he lived with a girl. He marries this girl after this book and lives a happy life. And they need to go out and look for the sword bits to make his sword again, to remake Glenn's sword again. Oh, wow. And so they go all around the world. They put it together. And then they say to him, well, someone needs to accept the sword um, to fight him. And so Glenn has to accept the sword again and become immortal again to fight him. And they fight and die. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> it goes um, crazy. But I like the idea that he's put all these different novels and then he brings them all together, even though they're two they're different genres and brings them all together. It's very smart. Very I'd, I'd like to read it. Stephen Kingish, isn't it? Oh, Stephen King loves him. Supposedly, oh, Steve, does he? he's one, Stephen King just adores his books. Like there's really? even a couple of Stephen King, um, there's a couple of Stephen King novels where he basically references it. He's like big amongst writers, like some, yeah. like he's that, he's like that, um, he's like what we are with some of them with the, our directors, you know, they're, yeah, they're yeah. the ones that you don't know his name, but he's been impactful while normal punters don't really like his books that often. Interesting. 
Oh, well, I love it. And I think it's really interesting. Um, I did, we'll get there a bit later, but I did manage to find a copy of Michael Mann's first draft of his script. <gasps> I was looking for something like that. All I found was a graphic novel, which I almost bought. Well, yeah, the novel actually became a graphic novel later on. Yeah, uh, I think 2000. sort of 2006 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 2006, and it's hard to buy, and that's what he wanted the movie to be like. Yeah, that's why well, I wanted to read it. Uh, we'll, we'll fast forward to something I was going to touch on a bit oh, later. Oh, sorry, my apologies. But, no, but uh, Wilson is really not happy with the way that Michael Mann made this film. Which, but it's really interesting because the script matches the first draft matches the synopsis for the book. So is he angry? So do you know if he's angry at Michael Mann or is he angry just at the movie that was released? Michael Mann. So much so. Uh, Wilson wrote a short film years later called Cuts. Oh. Where where basically a writer puts a voodoo curse on a director who bastardized his work so much that he just wanted to punish him. Wow. So you could tell. So from that, you could probably say uh, Wilson has actually. I'll, I'll quickly tell you what he well, what he I'll, said. I'll just quickly tell you a quick about cuts. I heard an awesome story today about the guys who made Howl's Moving Castle. Yes, you know, that you know that Studio Ghibli. So basically, that when they were releasing um, Mononoke. Princess Mononoke. Yep. They were going to release it over here, but Harvey Weinstein wanted to cut the shit out of it. So what, um, I don't know his name, but the head designer did, all he sent well, Harvey Weinstein was a fucking sword with a note that said, no cuts. <laughs> <laughs> that was That's it. So good. And it was released, no cuts. Oh, I <laughs> Sorry, love I had it, to bring Craig. that one. I just no. read it today. When you talk about cuts, I was like, hey. Well, let's get back to Wilson a bit later on. Uh, we'll, we'll now jump over to Michael Mann. Yeah. Um, where following both Jericho Mile and Thief, he has found himself in a position where he gets to decide what road he wants to take in terms of his career. And as you can imagine, people really wanted to see him continue to make sort of crime-related films. Yeah. But he was really worried that he might be pigeonholed as a director. <laughs> So, so he wanted to consciously move away from from that sort of realm and genre. Yeah. And so he really started thinking about, well, what would I want to do? Like, really, what what would be a challenge for me moving forward? And he really liked the idea of creating something fictional, and really loved the concept that he could build a world within a fictional space, and. This was thanks to a, a classic novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez called 100 Years of Solitude. Now, um, this is actually the world building within this novel is referenced a lot by people who love sort of uh, fantasy and gothic tales. And so basically within his novel, Marquez created a family tree with a really rich history and then interwove those within a magical world that he also created. Yep. So um, for Michael Mann, he really stated that Marquez's novel was a real source of inspiration oh, for, awesome. for yeah. what he wanted his next film to be. Not yep. really knowing that it was going to be the keep yet. He just really wanted to have a fantasy world where he could sort of ground it in reality but then build 
build this, a universe, yeah. Yeah, a universe around it and have it be somewhat fantastical. Um, and in an, int- in an interview with American Cinema Papers in 1983, Mann actually talks about what it was about creating that world that was so exciting for it. And he actually said there is an effect in the film where Molossar, so he's made the keep at this point, uh, there's an effect in the film whereby Molossar accrues himself particular uh, himself particles of matter from living organisms. Now, what is the logic of that? What does it look like? How does it happen? And what's the sound of it? I mean, that's a real turn on to fantasize what these things are going to be like. So we've heard in the past that Michael Mann is a very detailed filmmaker, very meticulous. And I really loved that response in his interview because it shows that he's not just there to go, all right, I'm going to create this mythical character. We want to know why is he in the keep? But he actually wants to know the nitty gritties. Like the nitty gritty is really what he loves about the journey. Do you know, in a fantasy world genre, there's actually a, a very, very, very serious sub-genre about the magic and the... Um, so, a lot of people will base their opinions on a fantasy novel, on how you build your power structure of magic. Wow. So, um, so one of the f- famous ones is... Um, like Mistborn series. Um, and so they, they structure the way that they do their magic. So it's, it's, you know, and it's a very, there's slightly scientific ways to it and stuff. Exactly like Michael Mann saying that, um, they, they put all this thought into how it clicks and how does that magic work on that person? Because they, if you don't do that properly, then a lot of there's this huge subgenre that'll just get rid of you. Wow. I know, yeah. We, I weirdly fell into it when I was reading the Mistborn series um, and heaps of people were like, yeah, yeah, you, Brandon Sanderson is, just does this and does that. This one doesn't do that. And this is where Harry Potter gets it wrong. And I'm like, oh, you know, Harry Potter has its has a huge amount of lore in it. It doesn't need yeah. to be. It's not the magic base, but it's actually the function of the physics of the magic that, a lot of, that attract a lot of people, obviously like Michael Mann. Yeah, I love it because like, I could totally understand in a way that if you are a meticulous filmmaker, you can imagine like a David Fincher. Yeah, incredibly. You know, a David Fincher would read a fantasy novel if he reads that sort of thing. And I could imagine he'd be like, well, that doesn't make sense to me for A, B, C and D. Like Peter Jackson. Yeah, totally. Like when Christopher Lee said, that's not how it sounds like when an axe hits someone in the back. (laughs) 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 that's a little bit more scary but yeah um so in addition to marquez's work man had also become really interested in creating his own sort of fairy fairy tale world um further to that thanks to bruno bettelheim's the uses of enchantment the meaning and importance of fairy tales Now, Bettelheim's work analyzes fairy tales and actually discusses them in terms of Freudian psychoanalysts. Oh, wow. Uh, That'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mann really states both Marquez's work and Bettelheim's as sort of the, I guess, the foundations of what really drew him to what later becomes the keep. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is really interesting. Yeah. So... I guess the reason I've put these things in here is there's a couple reasons. The first is 
I really want people to know that this isn't man just going, what's going to be next for me? I don't want to be a crime director all my life, so I'm going to go make the polar opposite. Which well, that's is what gothic. I thought. Exactly. And you could watch the film and be like, oh, what was he thinking? And then you look at his future uh, body of work and you'd go, well, he never went back there again. Yeah, he got scared and he's just never returned to that world ever again. That's right. And so I really want to show that he is already looking into this stuff and he's discussing this stuff before the film's in production. Yeah. So um, I also wanted to talk about it too. I think we will find as we think and we talk more about the film, I actually believe The Keep is from a time of fantasy films that are quite, they're quite important for future films. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but like I could draw quite a few parallels in this film to uh, some of Guillermo del Toro's work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Incredibly, incredibly. And, and so, like, when I'm watching this film, like, I could see Pan's Labyrinth taking place in the same world. Oh, incredibly. You can you, you see the juxtaposition between them so well. Like, like there's also the way some of the characters are designed. Like, yeah. they're so... And even there's that... And it's also common for that time. There's that, um, and it was like you. I remember you and I were talking about it off, off, off air. Uh, yep. That basically, there there has that link to like Excalibur, where it's that that greenish crystal green yep. coloring that comes through. And I think this is a time where they do develop that atmospheric fantasy. Yes, you know what I mean. Like there's, where's there's that fantasy that basically is very, um, very you know straight to the point fairy tale, you know, freaking yeah. princess princess bride type thing. But then there's also yeah, there's also these um, things that you only ever see on the side of panel vans. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Totally, totally. And we've got to also take into account that this is a post alien world. Oh yes, so yes. We've got we've got alien uh, operating in this realm as well, which is the the gothic dark coloration of the film, which the keep is very Geiger feel, Geigeresque, yes, in the way it is. And so things like Pan's Labyrinth, and you know, um, you know, even to an extent, the Shape of Water, the way it sort of feels, Still almost almost steampunky. In, in the way that it films, like, just in that tone, you just get this industrial sort of... And, <laughs> well, yeah, I guess in a sense. So I just I just really feel like The Keep is possibly uh, a bit more tonally inspirational or in sync with films that really become f- inspiration for some future fantasy slash gothic masters. I think he was definitely on the right track. Yeah, and again... May not have executed it perfectly, but sort of hitting a a spot that would become really popular later on, like ahead of his time in terms of what he was going for. Definitely, definitely. Um, so, Craig, so taking the inspiration from 100 Years of Solitude and the uses of enchantment, man decides his next project is going to be a tale of morality set within a modern time as opposed to sort of that Victorian era that often fairy tales are set Uh, as he calls it he really wanted to make an adult fairy tale cool Uh, this brings man to 
F. Paul Wilson's novel, The Keep. So really interestingly, when the film was announced sort of around 1982, uh, Mann did an interview with Sight and Sound magazine and he was actually asked how he felt about the novel and what drew him to adapt the novel. And so Mann actually comes out and he's quite honest in his response. So he says, initially, I didn't care much for the book. But then I realised, <laughs> but then I realised it contains something fantastic. I rewrote and then took the screenplay in a direction the book doesn't go, with the idea of doing a fable. It's a fascinating form. You don't have to deal with the origin of things in terms of natural phenomena or natural causes. You don't have to explain how or why. It's all accepted. You can just channel the characters into metaphor. Oh, yeah, I could see that. So you start getting an idea. Again, these are really important because they give an idea of what man's going for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, that, that, that explains a bit more of the film to me. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting too, keeping in mind that there is supposedly a three and a half hour cut of this film. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you could tell there is. He, oh, he, he couldn't be this bad. Of, you know he's not that bad of a director. No, definitely not, Craig. Like the way some of the things jump, and for those who haven't seen it yet, please try and track it down. Track it uh, down. This is seriously such a fascinating film because there are moments that literally have been cut so abruptly. That so the best way go. I can put it is you're going to go out, you're going to watch a TV series, but there's a couple of episodes missing. <laughs> totally. And there's no recap. And yep. suddenly you're just going to go, wait, 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 what's she doing with him? Oh, yep. okay, okay, yeah. And you're just going to have to run with it and just keep up with the episodes. <laughs> just keep up with the show. It's so true. Like literally there's one scene where the soundtrack actually goes click and it like changes like part of the song. So it, like my first watch of this film was literally, I kept going, is there a scratch on my disc? And what is going on? So I did a bit of research and people were just like, no, this film has been cut without man. Um, Horribly so, cut. Really interesting. But later in 1983, man discusses the film a bit more. Um, we're sort of in production slash post-production at this point. Uh, so he discusses it with a magazine called Starburst Magazine. And actually man says, let's face it, the book was very messy. I saw more potential than the existing application. The novel was the usual sort of solid gothic horror, and I wanted to do something a bit more expressionistic and basically like the whole thing as a dream. Now, I'm just going to take a little sidebar here. The concept of making the whole thing as a dream is really important to what Michael Mann was going for. He wanted the keep to feel like you were in a dream the whole time. Yeah. And this real... As time has gone on, when people start analysing the film from this, the the space that it's all set within a dream world, yeah, people really start to think. Uh, a few articles and essays that I read actually praise the film for the way Michael Mann nails the dreamscape. Um, so yeah, then Mann says, I mean, the vampires were out immediately. And I think this is really fascinating, Craig, because... The novel has both Molossar and Glaken are both ancient vampires. Yeah, 
Yeah. And and so they're sort of, um, and we'll get there a bit later, but they're actually meant to be almost twins in the way they interact with each other, one being the good one, one being the va- bad one. You never hear that they're actually twins. Um, so he says, yeah, I mean, the vampires were out immediately. It's nonsense, and it all has been seen before, and I'm just not interested in doing something that has been seen before or a variation on that theme. I wonder why this the author a- hates him. Yeah, man is definitely not being kind to someone's life's work. So he says, this is a very ambitious film to make as I want it to make you feel in ways you only feel once every two months or so when you have had an erotic dream or terrifying fantasy. The mechanism of events, as I see the story now, are repressed urges and desires in the unconscious mind that has to motivate the characters themselves in the story events themselves. And that is quite a departure from the book. This setting that Paul Wilson chose for his story works very well in the context of a fairy story for adults. I don't know what Wilson thinks about my changes to his story. We talked briefly, and he did send a telex with some suggestions, but... When we are making a movie, we are doing just that. The book is the raw material to change into what the movie has to be. <laughs> now, I um, do you think this is young man cockiness as well? One hundred percent. Yeah, and um, I think you'd probably to... approach this very differently now. I and when I mentioned earlier in the episode that this is a time for lessons learnt for man. Yeah. I think this is a young man who has the world at their feet. Yep. And probably burns a few bridges. Well, and it's a, a bit of time before he's able to get that back. Well, you can see he's putting together and, and you're probably, they've probably seen some of the dailies from the shot and they're probably, and they would, and you know, some of the scenes in this film are just absolutely amazing. They are um, beautiful. And so he's just very sure of himself, man. He's like, I've just got fucking three hours of just Lord of the Rings right here, man. Yep. Yeah. And yep. so he's like, man, that that dude's book is a piece of shit. I've just turned it into literature. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's also a really interesting thing to think about here. Man sort of, he talks about early in his career that he doesn't like discussing some of his early work because he views it himself as quite pretentious. Ah, okay. And, and I would hazard that when we sort of talk that pretentiousness, that, man, the more I've researched this, the more I believe that this is what man's talking about. This is what clicks into his head when he, when, when he actually does it. And even some of the uh, reviews of Thief that I found after we'd recorded our Thief episode talked about how they viewed the film as quite a pretentious film oh really yeah because at the time you got to remember crime films didn't worry about the emotions that the criminals were feeling okay so it was to to reviewers that it was a very pretentious way of looking at it talking about feelings and things like that so um i think it's really quite interesting it's a, it's a fascinating little season that man's in here and again probably paves a way for future projects for man uh, in a number of ways, which we will get to very soon. But oh, yeah. as, I'm, as I mentioned, Wilson 
wasn't entirely happy with the, the film that he saw from Michael Mann. He was asked in one interview what he felt about the film and he said that he felt the film was visually intriguing but otherwise utterly incomprehensible. That's a very good summary. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, I mentioned that he went on, uh, was so upset with the way man actually had um, treated his bodywork and probably talked about it in the press that he wrote a short uh, <laughs> story called Cuts that a writer puts on a voodoo curse on a director who's mangled his work. He also... And I got saw, turned into um, the player. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did see that also um, at one point, I think it was might have been Bloody Disgusting, did a list of like the 15 novels you should read that are way better than the adaptations. And on there was The Keep. And they sort of talked about the fact that the book uh, explains in much better detail things that the film could never get across. And um, and you know how sometimes when you read a story, they've got embedded their social media links so you can see what the conversation on Facebook is or yeah. Twitter or something like that. And, yeah, um, the, <laughs> the Facebook feed has Paul uh, F. Paul Wilson on there saying... These guys actually understand what my book's all about, unlike Michael Mann. <laughs> yeah, but like, I'm sort of like, is is it unfair? Like, because you didn't see the three hour cut, you know what I mean? Like, oh, definitely. Yeah, like, oh, it's, it's like people should know that. Like, you know, if you never saw the three hour cut, then how can you say it was that butchered? Yeah, very much so. But then again, if you're talking about Michael Mann, what he has already said about what he got rid of and all that stuff, you know that whatever the three-hour cut is, it probably wasn't that close to the book at all. Well, and it's really quite fascinating, Craig, because Mann then goes off and he writes the script. Yep. And as I mentioned, I did actually find a copy of the first draft, which was completed on the 13th of April, 1982. So he's written the first draft and I actually, I was like, stuff it. I'm going to read it. Oh, Jeff. Um, and I read it, Craig, before Be I rewatched you. the film. Giving blood oh, for first to last. Love well, your work, mate. I got to say, Craig, I was just so intrigued with this because it feels so disjointed to watch. Yeah. And knowing the quality of films that are to come and the quality of Thief. Like if we'd watched Thief, and it was a bit of a jumbled mess. Yeah. I would 100% understand how we could get the keep because, like, the keep literally just feels like a first-time filmmaker. Yeah, this felt like his first film. Fumbling their way through, and you could see little moments of visual beauty that you go, oh, wow. Like, those scenes where the crosses come on for the first time and it's lit through the hallway of the of the keep. Yeah. And the soldiers, like, running towards the, the big silver cross, you know? Yeah. Um, those moments, even the moments in, like, Vermin, the, the soldiers or the captain's office that are these beautifully, they're dark rooms with a single light just shining down on them. You know, there's, like, these visually striking moments in the film. 
let's talk let's talk I know not quickly talking about the film but let's quickly talk about the first time you actually see Molossar and yep. he's the smoke beast oh. and that's one of the most beautiful friggin things you'll ever see it's so gorgeous! I had Craig. someone tell. I had someone say that was Del Toro. They said that looks duck like Del Toro, like this smoke just literally just billowing, and just yeah, this smoke creature carrying someone yes. and just just flooding through the halls. Amazing, amazing. It is, it is amazing, Craig. And not only like the innovative, the innovative nature of that is such that. Not only do they film it, I didn't don't know if you noticed it, but the smoke was heading into Molossa, yeah. not billowing out. So essentially, they filmed it in reverse and played it so the smoke goes in. But you know, like you see moments of that, and you go, "This is not a fluky first film." No, you know it's not. And so my my brain, which thankfully has been able to go through it. We talk about from first to last being a really great film school. Yeah. Um, my brain then goes, hang on, this isn't the Michael man that I know or I've seen so far. I got to know more about this because this really felt Weinstein. You know, you went there before, but yeah. it felt like someone just chopped the heck out of this. It felt like an intern chopped the hell out of this. A hundred percent, Craig, a hundred percent. And we will get there a bit later on. So I did get the copy. The screenplay is only 106 pages long. So oh, wow. So you really must have added heaps. Yeah, really, really interesting. The first, uh, the first draft is 106. Now, the rule of thumb for filmmaking is for every page of script is a, pa- a minute on the screen. Yep. So... By that, you would read it and go, all right, I've got a 96-minute film or, a hundred, you know, a 106-minute film. Definitely. So uh, we've got a little over an hour and a half worth of content to put up there, maybe with a bit more coverage and things like uh, an epic battle scene, you know, um, we could end up with something that's almost two hours long. So I guess after my first read of the script, I was one... I'm interested to know how we get to more than three hours worth of content. Yep. Because there are some things that are added that I think could pad it out a lot, but there was definitely a lot more added after that first draft. Oh, to man. To get us to three hours. Which Didn't makes have to me, be. It makes me start questioning, Craig, maybe we've heard about people dropping a rough cut, which is literally just like every bit of footage pieced together in a way that feels really jumbled and hodgepodgey. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I wonder if that's the mysterious three-and-a-half-hour cut that people talk about. But Or maybe he's re- just stuffing around and just says, yeah, there is a three-and-a-half, but there isn't. Yeah, that's, that's very <laughs> that's like, true. That's the ultimate man joke. Just, you know, all these people going, oh, it's three-and-a-half, and he's just really like, nah, I was just staying through the whole fucking thing. Because <laughs> that's just my excuse. That's my excuse because I just did a horrible job. Hey, cocaine's it's, a hell of a drug. It's just me, <laughs> me, Steven Spielberg, and and Scott Glenn just doing coke, doing coke, oh. and then and then putting then putting it on Ian McKellen's face as makeup. <laughs> oh, <laughs> as he's <Craig>. scleroderma. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man so funny too like uh, when he first popped up i had no idea ian mckellen was in this film the, and, and As, also it's the cleanest concentration camp in the world <laughs> isn't it it's it's almost like they're having a picnic in front of a fence <laughs> it's funny when you say it like that it feels like they're actually at like the car races yeah exactly they they all you know they're very well fed you know apart from you know like they even let him keep his wheelchair <laughs> you know, just, and it's so weird to see ian mckellen <laughs> Pretending to be old because I've only ever known him as old. <laughs> oh, but he has moments in the film, Craig, where he like busts out a big yell, and it's like his voice hasn't changed for Gandalf no, at all. Not it's at all. Incredible. Um, it's funny though. A little bit in the script about the concentration camps is that they actually had no idea what the concentration camps were. Until later in the in the film, and you do hear Gabriel Byrne's character, who is um, the real hard SS captain. He actually tells them. I think it pops up a little bit in the film, but it's chopped up heaps. But he actually um, he threatens Kuza to say, um, "If you don't do this, you're going back to the camps." And um, and there's only two doors. Yeah, there's only two doors, one in and the other is out of a chimney. And so, like, in the script, that plays out in such a way that he is like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. And um, the priest sort of, again, that storyline is chopped up a little bit, but the priest, played by Robert Prosky, um, he's actually requested you get a better understanding in the screenplay, which is such a shame because he's actually told them about Kuza. Yeah. being an expert on the keep when he's not. And yeah. his whole reason for doing it is to just, he knows he's in the concentration camps and wants to save him. Um, and so he wants to, we get a little hints of it. He wants to smuggle him away, but uh, Kuza becomes so sort of um, enticed and intoxicated by the, the power and his want to reve- uh, seek revenge on the Nazi soldiers yeah. that he doesn't take the opportunity. And Prosky starts eating chickens, live chickens? No, he eats his dog. Oh, is that his dog? That's his dog. So, again, in the screenplay, there are moments where they develop. So, if I'm really to go into what's different between the 106-page script and the 96-page minute (laughs) film that we got... um, they're actually really similar, Craig. And But what we lose is we've probably got 10 minutes chopped out of the film that actually makes all those pieces not jarring. So it's, could it be possible that they got the three hours, Michael Mann says, I quit. And so the only reference they have is the first draft. And they said, look, cut it down to make it as much like this as possible. It's highly likely... Uh, we'll get there again a bit later, but I think Michael Mann actually gets removed from the project. Makes sense. Makes um, so much and, sense. And we'll find out why a bit later, because the actual production is a bonkers story in itself, Craig. Um, <laughs> but essentially, we'll dive into what the script, what I saw in that script. And, and yep. again, I had to go back and watch the film again just to make sure that I was getting those things that were different in there. But essentially, it really is those moments that aren't fully fleshed out yeah. um, in the film 
are fleshed out in the screenplay. So suddenly moments um, make sense. So let's say, you know, the the um, I'm going to jump in and just start with Glaken, which is played by Scott Glenn. Yep. They call him Glenn for short. Um, from the moment that he wakes up and he's, I think he's in Greece. In the he's film. in Greece, yeah. Yeah, um, he's in Portugal in in the first draft. Um, but you know that there's a connection between him and Molisar. So it's really apparent that he's waking up because Molisar has been awoken. And so, I don't know, in the film again, it just feels like this real jump to, oh man, who's this dude with the sparkles? With sparkly eyes, yeah. yeah. And so, um, so what actually happens is the moment he wakes up, he knows that he's got to head back to Romania. And, and so he, we follow his journey from Greece to Romania. So like we see in the film, he um, jumps on a boat. Yep. And travels off. Now, in the, the screenplay, there are these moments where he has a money purse filled with gold. And it actually leads a couple times to him having sort of fights on his journey to Romania. Um, but we follow his arrival all the way to the village. And the journey is actually like, it's quite epic. So because the war is going on, there's like a moment where he's like on a boat journey down um, down the river and he's having to hide because there's a war taking place either side of the river. Yeah, so the fisherman was like very cagey, you know, wasn't he? Cagey about taking him down there, and he yeah. did give him a gold coin. Because I remember thinking, "Man, these dudes, do, do, do these fishermen just already automatically know it's gold?" You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they just look at it and go, "Yeah, that's a good coin. That'll take you there." <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I want to see him bite it and just take it to a, a metallurgist and go, "Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's gold. All right, good. It's, it's pure. It's pure. It's um, pure. <laughs> that's pure so, dirt." Like, <laughs> We do this journey of him working his way through a war-torn Europe to get to Romania from Greece. Um, and they're really great because along the way, the mystique is built up about what's inside the case as well. Yeah. So it's strange in the film. It's almost like he's just carrying this case and I don't know, you're just like, yeah, he's got a case. <laughs> Something's in there, but, you know. It's and so a lead pipe. <laughs> we, we have that like weird moment as well you know he's on the motorbike and he stopped at the checkpoint yes um that happens way later in the screenplay so that's like someone sort of picked that up and gone oh no that'll be a really good way to say he's on a journey by dropping it here yeah exactly um so that's sort of the last bit before he arrives in the village and when he arrives at the village it's the moment that eva is sent away from the keep yeah um and again that moment she sent away is really important because you get a better sense of Vermin, um, the the German captain, how he is actually like a um, he's a soldier that's not comfortable being a Nazi. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of fleshed out a bit more. But so he arrives at the village when Eva's sent away from the keep, and what's actually happened is the evil of Molisar has started, as he's got stronger, to permeate outside the keep. So the village has actually begun to turn on itself. Uh, and so when she gets out of the keep, straight away she sees, you know, at the start there's like the um, 
the caretaker of the keep and his sons come down the stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never uh, see them again. No, well, there's a whole scene where his sons actually turn on him and kill him in front of Eva and then start coming after her. And she is saved by the innkeeper who then helps... Uh, actually, Glenn turns up and saves her and the innkeeper gets her inside. So then... Um, there's all this conversation about like, oh, I'll give you somewhere to stay. It's all right. Come upstairs. And so Glenn has also arrived and spoken to the innkeeper before that to say, I want a room where I can see the keep. And so that's why we get that scene where Glenn's already in her bedroom. Which is a weird ass scene. Which so makes strange. sense when you talk about it. But in the movie, she just walks upstairs and Glenn's in there and goes, this is my room as well. Let's share it. Baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Literally. It does his little, you know, Scott Glenn glow eyes. And it's so funny, isn't it? The whole um, bluish eyes that he's got going on. Yeah. Um, after our Evil Dead episode and they talked about how thick those contact lenses were. Yeah. I just kept thinking, Scott Glenn, you poor bastard. They're just oh, like poor massive Scotty. contacts, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And it's so funny that he fights the Nazis, but they would have loved him because his eyes were so blue. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's... So true. So true. So we sort of established that there's a connection between Glenn and Eva already because he's like saved her life, um, helped her escape. So that's why it's not weird when he's up there in the room. Yeah, and and in the the screenplay, it's actually a bit different as well. Where she checks into that room, wants a room that overlooks the keep, so she can like go. She's got plans to keep an eye on her father, yeah, from a distance. Um, and then Glenn turns up, and he wants to have the room that can see the keep as well, because he wants to uh, get down there and protect everything. So then, them wanting to be in the same room together is explained a bit better as well. Ah, okay, so cool. So, yeah. again, it's just not so So, jarring. this is where it's like missing an episode in the movie where you watch 100%. the movie. She she walks out of the keep, meets Scott Glenn, and then they're banging within like 30 seconds. Which is so crazy because what happens is... We like, have and they're in love for the rest of the film. Oh, it's so weird. Like, Greg, love of my life type shit. Like, no, he's my betrothed. Yeah. It's <laughs> so bizarre, Craig. Because, like, the, and the sex scene in it is, like, it's quite, it's really weird. The first time I watched it, I thought, wow, this is so erotically shot. Yeah, exactly. Um, But then the second time I watched it, I was like, and it's so strangely laden with symbolism. It, it's like, weird, but it's yeah, and it's also very, it's erotically shot, but it's still a bit cold. Yeah, it is. Uh, isn't it's it? a very cold. You know, it's very. You know, this basically a lot of it is just. It's very eighties cold. Very. You know what I mean? So. Like there's just it's just you know there's no no passion to it. Well, and it's funny because like the second time watching it, I'm like, oh wow. She's just like wiggling as if she's dancing. It was like weird. She's sort of wiggling. And then it's he like, does the things. Yeah, it's over choreographed. 
Yeah, it's totally because they do the whole thing where he like spreads her arms wide and the <laughs> shot is behind them with the window. And I'm like, is this like a crucifix sort of metaphor going on in here? It's the symbol of the talisman that's through the whole movie. Yeah. You know, totally. that weird symbol of the talisman through the whole movie. And obviously, you, you could tell obviously there's that huge callback to vampire lore through the whole film as well. Which he doesn't want to talk about, but then wants to talk about. It's like really, it's really yeah. odd. Yeah, exactly. Um, like he, he doesn't, Michael Mann doesn't make an effort to get rid of a lot of that um, vampire lore. Yeah. You know, Carpathia, you know, bloody silver, yeah. um, the crosses, you know, all that, yeah. the no reflection. Well, and I'm glad you went there, Craig, because, you know, like, he helps her into the room with the bags and stuff and she goes to sleep because she's exhausted. Yeah. She's just, and we've got to remember, she's just come out of, she was almost raped. Yeah. In the keep by the Nazi soldiers. So. And saved by she, a smoke dragon. Yeah. <laughs> saved by a smoke dragon who has healed her father. Um, and so she has a sleep. Not before looking over and noticing that she can't see Glenn's reflection in a mirror. Yeah. Um, which is really important because, again, it's showing that Glenn is a vampire. Yeah, exactly. But it also, and, and, and she's just like, oh, well, in the last 24 hours, I've just seen fucking worse. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and At least so there's no smoke have... dragon. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful smoke dragon. Um <laughs> And so when she wakes up in the screenplay, she is like, she wakes up and realizes that Glenn's not in the room anymore. And she's actually like, oh man, where is he? And so she like looks over and sees his mystery box laying on the, on the bureau thing there. And so she actually opens it and has a look at it. And that's the first time you see what he's been carrying around. You're like, oh wow, this is some weird sort of alien weapon. Yeah. Um, it's and just a pole. He's, he actually knows that she's opened it. Like ah. he feels it. And so she looks out the window and um, sort of sees him walking around in the dark on the other side of the keep, sort of the village side. And so she goes out to follow him and is sort of watching what he does. And in it slips and nearly falls down the gorge that's between the keep and the village. Yeah. But he saves her. Which oh, yeah. is, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's like this weird two-second shot before they go off and have sex where it's like a sunrise and they're sitting on top of like a mountain and they're talking just yes. for like a couple seconds. Yeah. So in the, in the screenplay, he then gives her backstory as to what he's doing there oh. and the journey he's been on and... There's like this connection point, which then leads them to sort of be romantically linked. But you actually read in the screenplay, he basically does like a vampire sort of hypnotizing trick on her. Yeah, because he uses it on her. her. But he also uses it on her when she starts asking questions and he goes, sleep. And yeah. she just falls asleep. And I'm like, fuck, man, I wish I could use that on my wife. Brooke, <laughs> <laughs> sleep. Sleep. So um, he uses that sort of to seduce her. She, They then have sex. But it's strange. It may not be right, but it makes sense 
in the context of he's now saved her life twice. They have that connection. So when they have sex, it's not like, what the heck? Yeah. Because in the film we get, it literally is like, I want this room. She has a snooze, wakes up, and then they have sex. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think it's time. (laughs) Which is so strange. Now, you mentioned also, Craig, that there was like um, the priest eating, like drinking the dog's blood. It was dog's blood, man. That's, That's gross. So through the the screenplay, every time the priest turns up, there's the dog, and everyone like is um, like Kuza pats the dog, and there's yeah. all this stuff to do with the dog. So it's a symbol of how evil has really got into the village at the fact that this beloved creature, the priest, would sacrifice and drink its blood. And again, we jump away from that so darn quickly. Exactly. And they just pass um, it off. Oh, the evil's coming into the village. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> and, and so it's meant to be like she runs to the priest to tell him that she's been kicked out of the keep and all this other stuff that then is just like, you know, again, chopped to poopy. Yeah, and exactly. There are, there are more photos of that interaction where supposedly the priest gets up and starts trying to attack her and kill her in there. Yeah, um, which we don't really get there. I think uh, so. The the that whole bit of Glaken is really fleshed out so much better than we actually get. Um, I want to tell you a bit too. His staff, the mysteries, really really build up as well. So that's that's an important thing I took out of there. Uh, well, he's, are, in the book, it's a sword. Yeah, and it's interesting because in one of the endings, so there were multiple endings filmed for this film. Yeah. Um, and someone actually said, I would love this to be like the movie Clue, where we actually get a director's cut from Michael Mann and you watch every single one of those edi- endings like a <laughs> Scooby-Doo ending. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. Um, so with Molazar, we actually get a lot of dialogue between he and Kuza that is sort of cut out. And so he actually talks about he is he is a vampire. Yeah, and he was actually last awake with Vlad the Impaler. Yeah, makes and sense. a whole heap of people there. So he says, "My people about Carpathia." Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And so he's one of those original sort of vampires who yeah. has been asleep for years. And so he actually, um, when he awakes, wants to know who's been killing Kuz's people who have done this to you. Yeah. Um, to which he explains that. We get a little bit of it, like about when he talks about their leader sits in Berlin and rah, rah, rah. So you start realising that um, Molossar actually is doing this not just because he's awoken and he's a savage beast, but he actually feels that the, the Nazis, he wants to kill them because they're killing Jewish people. Yeah. Um, but he's also manipulating Kuzo as well, yeah. A hundred percent. He 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 definitely is. And even like they don't um they don't go into depth about it, but that whole um the priest gives Kuza the, the silver cross. Um when Molossar drops off uh, Eva into the the quarters there, he uses it at the end of their conversation, he holds it up. And um, Molossar says, why are you trying this on me? I, haven't I shown you that I'm trustworthy? And so he sort of apologizes, which is why he gives it to Vermin, the German soldier. 
Yeah. Um, and later, when Gabriel Byrne's character has shot Furman and taken the cross, he's taken it because he wants protection. And uh, Molisar actually says, um, he says, oh, this was meant to protect me, this cross. And he goes, that was a lie. It was never going to get, like, never going to save Kuza. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, all that sort of stuff comes out a bit more. But, yeah, so Molisar, we, we find out all that stuff. We learn more about his connection with Glaken. One thing that's really interesting is the fact that um, visually they wanted Glaken and Molisar to look almost identical, like a black and white version of each other. And you and, see that towards the end. Yes, and I don't know if you picked up on it, but Glenn, when he's walking, has this crazy sort of thickness from his neck to his shoulders. Yeah. It's like really huge. And that was them trying to make Glenn look more like Molisar. And you see it more, and it becomes more profound as in their final battle between Glenn and Molisar, you st- you, they start, he almost starts to blend more and become more like Molisar with that huge yeah. friggin', um I don't know, He-Man neck. <laughs> oh, it's it's crazy too because there's one stage where he walks and the, the neck's gone and then he turns in another shot and you could see it's all like a prosthetic sort of thing there. But let's also, for a moment, just appreciate how ripped is Scott Glenn in this film? Oh, man. Scott Glenn has always been a pretty fit dude, hey? Totally. Like pretty fit. Totally. But, you're, 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 but you see a lot... This was good about Scott Glenn. You actually see a little bit more of the of the action star Scott Glenn. You yeah. know what I mean? I've always seen so him as much. the. I guess in my generation, I always saw him as the the backup character. You know what I mean? Yeah. That almost yeah, that sucker punch type character. You know, shows up, shows him, adds a bit of gravitas to it all, and then gets yep. onto it. Yeah. Totally, Craig. Totally. Um, one thing I also wanted to talk about was in the script was that the arrival of the SS is not this weird appearance. So yeah. in the film, we've got Worman and his men are, are in there, they're being attacked, and then suddenly the SS arrive, they kill a whole heap of villagers and take control of the situation. And you're like, how did they get here? But we actually find out that um, Gabriel Byrne's character is given the task to go to the keep because Vermin has contacted the um, military in in Germany to say, I need to be taken away from this post because all my troops are being murdered. And so Gabriel Byrne's job is then to come to the keep to investigate who they think is a a, a partisan, a local partisan well, that's killing them all. I read the first two chapters of the book. Yeah, yeah. And it's all from um, Gabriel Byrne's perspective. Oh, wow. So he first comes in and um, he's coming into the main office and um, and he has a backstory with Furman. So, Interesting. So they have a history during the Great War or something similar and, and, he, and they never got along then as well. Um, so there's a back, wow. there's a history between them. And so he comes in and the guy goes, um, the head guy goes, look, I just got this and he goes and he vermin reads it and it says my men have been murdered um my men have been murdered request relocation murdered by something request relocation and they and they spend an, another bit of the chapter where he goes well i know vermin would never just say um 
would never say this because he's a strong, he's a war hero. You know, he's like Von Trapp. He's a war hero of a previous war. Well, you know, yep. uh, out of the sound of music, odd, you know, but he's a war hero of the previous war, not a Nazi war hero. Um, and so that, that explains a lot of obviously Vermin's character. Um, yep. And, and so, yeah. And so he gets that and then he's, he gets sent off to the, he he, he sends, he gets sent off to the keep to see what's going on. Love it. So good. Um, so that bit's sort of missing, which again, it feels so jarring when they turn up. Yeah, exactly. Because, and it's so strange because it really is a matter of minutes. Yeah, additional. Oh, minutes, man. Absolute minutes. Like seriously, this this whole movie would have been so amazing as a um as a new HBO TV series. Oh, totally. We would have had that mad dark, you know, that dark suburbia stuff to it where you could focus on the um the 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 people who look after the keeps kids in one episode, yep. what happens to the village in another episode, backstories in one episode. It'd be amazing to watch, man. And all totally through it, you'd have great. Scott Glenn's character getting closer and closer and closer. Yes, I love it. And I, I would hazard is what man was going after in his three-hour cut. Yeah, exactly. That the journey and the tension building up until then was that way. Now, also, the ending of the film was totally different in the script. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying there was a couple versions? Yeah, so um, they they filmed two. So what was the version that was in the film? So we got this, this version, um, which is not in the script. This is a total different version we get, which is they're basically in the bowels of the, um, the keep having a fight, um, which is as a result of a tragedy that we'll get to a bit later on that totally changed the way that the ending of this film was. Um, And so the script actually ends similar to how it is um, in the film that we get. Again, giving a bit of weight to your theory that they basically edited, the studio edited this film based on that first draft. Um, There's this weird sort of throughout the script, there's an underlying analogy that pops up of they keep noticing there's no birds. Why there? There's no birds at the keep. It's this big building. Why isn't there birds? But there are at the village. And it's talking about the fact that birds can sense the presence of evil. So they ah. don't. And then as the evil gets into the village more, the birds are gone. Or there's dead birds on the windowsill and stuff like that. And so um, basically, like we see in the film, you've got uh, Eva and her father are taken away by the villagers out of the keep as the whole battle sort of raged on. Um, and it ends with her seeing a bird, um, picking up some twigs and going off to make a nest to sort of show, oh, the oh, birds are back. Evil's now they're just going to shit all over the keep. <laughs> <laughs> it's not black anymore. Because it's fucking beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful looking keep. And so that's, that's what's in the script. Um, and the ending that they actually filmed with intention of having is this giant one that takes place. The keep had a tower at the top of it, which we never see really. Um, And so Glenn and Molisar end up fighting all the way to the top of this tower and have this epic battle on the top of the tower, which then they would get sucked into a portal. Um, And Like Monster Squad. 
sucked into a, sucked into a portal. There was an alternate ending that Man really pushed for that wasn't put in the film, uh, which was that after all the battle ends, you think that Glenn's been sucked away into a portal and died, and he actually um, Eva climbs down into the bottom of the keep and finds Glenn sort of laying down in the bottom of the keep and they actually hug and um and then it cuts to a boat sailing away with Kuzer back in his wheelchair and Glenn and Eva on the the boat together sailing away for the happy ending. Uh, but the studio didn't like that one. Yeah, yeah. I like the the original ending obviously which was yeah, so Glenn versus Malasar and they do that, whatever that thing is. Like he shoots through his pipe. Yeah. <laughs> he shoots out of his pipe and hits Molossar and they both get sucked into this um, drain thing. But it's funny that ending, uh, and it's funny, it's a good thing by Michael Mann, actually starts to, starts to tell you that they're more aliens than they are yeah. creatures. Yep. So you actually see, um, come across like the Oh, what is it? The grid pattern come across um, yeah, his Glenn's eyes. Yeah, and everything yeah. starts... And you start to go, okay, maybe this is sci-fi. You know, yeah. all from that little bit at the end, you start to go, okay, maybe it is sci-fi. Yeah. yeah. And and I think I agree with you totally because, like, and when he gets shot on the on the galleyway... Oh, yeah. Um, his blood is that fluorescent sort of green, really sort of iridescent in colour, which made me go, like... Those moments make me go. This feels more in an alien world, yeah, than uh, Excalibur world. Um, and I reckon, you know, when you start talking about a fairy tale, uh, studios could think they're going to get another Excalibur or a Krull or a Legend. I don't know if Legend had been released at this point yet, but um, they would think they would get that. But they're actually getting. You know, like a an epic sci-fi. Oh, it would have been fantastic still. if, like that, that you find out that the tower they're on is actually like a spaceship. Yes. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the whole keep is actually just a gigantic fucking spaceship that end up just <laughs> you know, and you start to see it. You start to see it lift up, and you know, and you know whatever it is, and or disappear into some vortex or something like that. That'd be awesome. Love it. That'd be awesome. That totally would be awesome. Now, Craig, this is. As we've mentioned, this is an epic episode for what is a potentially epic film. We call it an epic episode. That's right. So we're going to return next week. Now we know what the script is is sort of like with the rest of the production journey for this amazing film. Next week. So, Craig, from all of us here from First to Last Podcast, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Greg Killian. And we'll catch you next week for the conclusion of the Keep episode.